This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, November 23rd, 2015. Episode 19, Concerning the Hermit of the Dale. Welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Here in the U.S., we're in the middle of the end-of-year holiday trifecta, um, probably the three holidays that loom largest on a child's calendar, Halloween, Thanksgiving, and finally Christmas, along with the winter festivals of other uh, religious and cultural traditions, of course. These holidays set the rhythm for the end of the school term, a rhythm that I still feel uh, even now, two decades removed from grade school. As a child, Thanksgiving suffered in this scheme. Uh, Halloween was fun, costumes and candy, uh, and it tended to signal the full entry into autumn, Uh, or at least it did for a kid growing up in Tennessee, where climate-wise it was still possible to have Halloween Uh, with temperatures hovering around 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And I don't need to explain the all-consuming, feverish anticipation of Christmas. So Thanksgiving gets stuck in the middle, doomed to be a disappointment because it's a reminder that there's still a month to go before Christmas. Um, Though it still has gravitas because you get a several-day break from school and it has all of its own traditions and iconography, So a child recognizes it as a real holiday, but it's just not an exciting one. It doesn't capture the imagination of a kid, or not this kid anyway. Compared to the confections of Halloween uh, and Christmas, Thanksgiving is a decidedly uh, savory holiday. And certainly my appreciation of its virtues um, has really only come uh, with adulthood. So as the Thanksgiving mood settles on me, uh, the orange and red and blustery mood of November, I thought we might look at a text that itself is filled with a kind of cozy love of home, of the heritage of a place and its people. In this case, neither a nation nor a family home, but a community in between those two concepts, uh, an abbey. This will be a two-part series, um, sort of carrying us through a Thanksgiving and homecoming theme uh, for the holidays. Today's part is the gentlest and most nostalgic, uh, a bit of a departure from our usual fare in terms of tone, um, but it's interesting for its own reasons. The second part uh, that we'll get to next episode will get us into more distinctly death trip-oriented material. The text we're going to be looking at is the brief Chronicle of Dale Abbey, also known as the Chronicle of Deepdale and as the Chronicle of the Abbey of St. Mary de Parco Stanley. This is a rather modest little chronicle, only about a dozen pages long, and the text reflects the modest stature of the institution whose founding narrative it preserves. Dale Abbey in Derbyshire was not a powerhouse. It wasn't even an abbey for a considerable portion of its history, Um, Instead, it was a priory for a community of canons regular rather than monks. Uh, And if you're not up on your Catholic religious orders, the difference is that canons regular are priests living in a community under a rule similar to a monastic rule, 
Um, but unlike monks, who are meant to be cloistered and closed off from the outside world to lead their lives of contemplation and prayer, canons generally continue to do pastoral work for their parish. At its peak, Dale Abbey housed only a couple dozen canons. And though by the time you get to the dissolution of the abbeys by Henry VIII, Dale Abbey as a corporation was a reasonably well-off landlord, its history as preserved in its chronicle is marked by poverty and austerity and a general sense of being tucked away in the back of beyond. And as so often happens with such communities, uh, you see its historian trying to juggle the record of the house's failures with uh, nonetheless powerful pride of place. For this episode, we're going to start at the beginning, with the opening statement of our author and the first episode in the Abbey's history, the initial creation of a holy site by a humble hermit. The chronicle is preserved in a Cottonian manuscript, in this case Vespasian E26, which uh, contains a number of documents relating to Dale Abbey, including our only surviving copy of this chronicle. The manuscript was produced in the late 13th century, and the chronicle itself was composed only a few decades earlier. In this case, we happen to know the name of the author because he encoded it in capital letters at the start of each new section or chapter of the chronicle, um, though this name has been reconstructed uh, for us because the scribe who transcribed the chronicle didn't actually preserve all of the original section breaks. Um, but at any rate, the name of the author appears to be Thomas de Musca, uh, or Muscum, who is recorded as having been a canon of the Abbey in the mid-13th century. And he does tell us a teensy bit about his own biography at the start of this chronicle. So though he's still largely unknown, he pops out as a bit more of a person than many of our other anonymous chroniclers. Before we get to the text, a couple of prefatory explanations. First, uh, you'll hear a reference to a character called the Gom of the Dale. She was the godmother of local landholder Serlo de Grendon, who gave her Deep Dale, making her the chief lay custodian of the place that would later become the Abbey. The title Gom um, is a shortened form of godmother much like gossip is a contracted form of god-sibling. So Gom is godmother. Uh, she's a big figure in the history of the Abbey, uh, but she doesn't actually figure that prominently in the bits of the Chronicle um, we'll be looking at. Nonetheless, it's a bit of an unusual title that I wanted to clarify. The other point is just a little clarification. You'll hear someone compared in very positive terms to Lucifer, this might seem bizarre, uh, unless you bear in mind the etymology of the word Lucifer. So Lucifer means light bearer. It's the Latin translation, in fact, of phosphorus. Uh, and as such, it's a name applied to the fallen angel, uh, ostensibly describing his pre-fallen state. But it's also the name in the classical world of the morning star, the dawnbringer, which is uh, actually the planet Venus, as seen in the early morning sky. In fact, the comparison in the Chronicle mentions the pair of Lucifer and Hesperus, which are the morning star and the evening star, both of which are, in fact, Venus, uh, depending on whether you're catching it just before dawn or right after sunset. And lastly, 
One word of warning. This text starts out with a nice, clean invocation and then launches into a second sentence that is a nightmarish chain of subordinate clauses that I did my best with, um, but it's probably going to be gobbledygook to most listeners. Uh, But the narrative in the prose does get better if you can weather that first minute or so. Uh, Basically, what Thomas is doing Um, And part of the reason why I've kept this part in, even though it's a bit hard to follow by ear, um, what he's doing is the very conventional medieval author's opening statement um, of their own humility and the assertion that they're not writing for personal glory or because they think they're good at it, but just because someone's asked them to and they have a duty to perform for posterity. You'll find a variation on that opening statement, uh, which is sometimes called the humility topos, in almost every monastic chronicle, and indeed in most things written by churchmen of the age. One interesting site of variation in this formula uh, is the degree to which the author emphasizes, um, and in some cases overemphasizes, their own inadequacy, especially as a Latin stylist, um, and the degree to which they exhort their reader to see the good purpose of the work and ignore the errors of its all-too-human author. Thomas is an example of the focus on the latter point, uh, actually pushing it so far that it goes beyond beseeching the reader to be generous, uh, all the way to pointing the finger at readers who aren't. Which means he probably wouldn't appreciate me complaining about the syntactical complexity of his opening paragraph. Uh, Oh well. Anyway, that's enough preface. Um, Let's hear the story of the Hermit of the Dale. I'll be reading from the 1883 translation of the Chronicle by W.H. Sinjin Hope. May the Holy Mary be present at my beginning. To thy petition, dearest brother, since it is very proper and useful, being willing to accede, Even though my mind, busied with the pious avocations of the sorrow which has lately fallen on me, takes the effort hardly, as the divine goodness has looked upon this place with pity and mercifully chosen it for its own indwellers, because it has not chosen a people on account of the place, but the place on account of the people, by whom it was inhabited before the advent of our premonstratensians, and through whom, or in what manner, our order by the right hand of God was first planted here, as from our predecessors and others who knew those things well, which I am about to relate, I have known by voracious narrative. With faithful pen, I will briefly take pains to set forth that those who come after may tell of the praises of the Lord, and his virtues, and his wonderful works which he did in that place." But I pray thee, whosoever reads these things, not to blame me because I venture to attempt this little work, unattempted by such eminent men who preceded us in this way in which we walk, but that, in the way in which I compose it, do thou understand it. For not with the assurance of levity or of rashness do I commence it, but with true humility and mere goodwill that our juniors and others who will may have knowledge of past events done in this place in the days of our forefathers, which, if through the fault of neglect they be not committed to writing, would be unknown to those who come after. Read, therefore, patiently, and when thou hast read it through, if in the little work itself thou shalt have found certain things worthy of emendation, 
be, I beseech thee, a charitable corrector, and not a presumptuous perverter, because in no way can he be a good corrector who is always an interpreter of the unfavorable part. But because there are very many who, without cause, delight to detract from the writings of the pious, I then, having invoked the grace of the Holy Ghost, not fearing the barkings of such, after the example of Ulysses will pass by with a deaf ear the voices of the siren. May the Most High, through the merits of those who read, cause my name to be inscribed in the Book of the Living. Nevertheless, to him wishing to know it, it can be easily known by the capital letters. Honorable do I deem it in the beginning of the first chapter, briefly to compose something in praise of the brave men who received me, on the call of God, among them to the regular habit. For why may not this work praise those on earth whom a most holy life led to an honorable death and Christ has already happily crowned in heaven? I, therefore, in the midst of the flowers of boyhood and youth, having been given by my father to serve God and his pious mother, the Virgin Mary, took the habit in this place from the abbot, John Groncourt, a venerable father, deserving of love from God and man, who was the especial associate of the blessed Augustine of Lavenden. These two, in those days, shone forth in the order as Lucifer and Hesperus in the height of heaven. There were at that time men of this holy monastery spending their days without complaint before God, wearing the splendid robes of the virtues, having the countenance of angels, glowing with mutual charity, and serving devoutly the Lord Jesus Christ. Who may suffice to enumerate the virtues of Brother Geoffrey de Gowell, of Brother Roger de Darby, and of the rest? It became such a father to have such sons. In the magnitude of their virtues, if I had the fluent loquacity of Homer or Morrow, it would, I think, fail to be expressed. Four years and more had I been among them, in their veteran congregation, when a noble matron, the Lady Matilda de Salicosa Mara, the foundress of our church, whose memory is in our benediction, came to us from the district of Lindsay, old and full of days, because, knowing the time of her vocation from this world to be rather quickly approaching, she had disposed herself to commend her end to God by the prayers of such holy men. And the holy convent having been summoned before her on a certain day for the sake of discoursing, and mention having been made of the first inhabitants of this place, she began the following narrative before them all. Open your ears, said she, to the words of my mouth, my dearly beloved sons, and I will tell you a tale, not a tale, but a circumstance which most certainly happened. There was a certain baker in Derby, in the street which is called St. Mary's. Moreover, at that time, the church of St. Mary's at Derby had a large parish and a chapel, and the church of Hanor was subject to it. And the said baker, being in a measure another Cornelius, was a man religious and fearing God, so intent upon his good works that whatever food and clothing besides his own and his children's and the needful things of the house he could procure during the week, on every Saturday he would bring to the church of St. Mary and bestow upon the poor for the love of God and the Blessed Virgin Mary. And when with such pious exercises he had passed his life for many years and had been dear and acceptable to God, it pleased God to prove him more perfectly, and having proved him, to crown him more gloriously. Also it happened that on a certain day in autumn, when he had given himself up to repose at noon, there appeared to him in his dreams the Blessed Virgin Mary, saying, Thy alms are acceptable before my son and me. 
but now if you wish to be perfect, leave all that thou hast, and go to Deepdale, and there thou shalt serve my son and me in solitude. And when thou shalt have happily finished thy course, thou shalt have the kingdom of brightness and mirth and eternal happiness, which God has prepared for those who love him. The man awaking and perceiving the divine goodness which had been done towards him, giving thanks to God and the Blessed Virgin, his comforter, spoke nothing to any man, but, having left all that he possessed, straightway withdrew, knowingly ignorant, as it is read of the Blessed Benedict, knowingly, because he had learnt the name of the place, ignorant, because he was entirely without knowledge where the place was. Therefore, turning his course towards the east, whilst he was passing through the midst of the village of Stanley, he heard a woman saying to a certain girl, Take our calves with thee, and drive them as far as Deepdale, and return hastily. Having heard that, the man, admiring the favor of God, and believing this voice to have been made as if on his own account, was astonished, and approaching near, said, Tell me, good woman, where is Deepdale? Who replied, Go with the girl, and she, if you wish, will show you the way. Whither, when he had arrived, he found that the place was a marsh, exceedingly dreadful, and far distant from every habitation of man. And turning himself to the southeast of the place, under the side of the mountain, he cut for himself in the rock a very small dwelling, and an altar turned to the south, which has been preserved to this day. And there, by day and night, he served God in hunger and thirst and cold and nakedness. Moreover, a certain man of great power, by name Ralph Fitzgerald, at that time was lord of the moiety of the town of Ockbrook and of Alveston, Cumsoka. He, when one time he came from Normandy to England, was pleased to visit his lands and forests. And when one day, seeking game, he had come with his dogs for the sake of hunting in his woods of Ockbrook, accompanied by a great band of men, he drew near to the place where lived the man of God. And seeing the smoke of the fire ascending from the cave of the man of God, he indignantly wondered most exceedingly by what appearance of impudence any one dared to make himself a habitation in his wood without his permission. Therefore, approaching the place, he found the man clothed with old rags and skins. When he had inquired of him how and whence and why he had come there, and the other had explicitly shown the reason, the same Ralph Fitzgerald was smitten at the heart, and seeing the miserable case of the man of God, granted to him the place, and gave him the tithe of his own mill of burr for his support. And from that time until this day hath that very tithe remained to the brethren serving God at Deepdale. Thus far are the words of the aforesaid Lady Matilda. Others, too, she recounted, which will be arranged properly in their places. But the old enemy of the human race, the crafty one, seeing the new soldier of Christ flourishing with the different flowers of the virtues, began to envy him, as he had done to other saints, introducing frequently into his meditations the vanities of the world, the asperity of his life, the most unendurable solitude of the place, and various inducements to leave, as Humphrey, whom many who are alive now knew, used to relate not only to me, but also to many others. This Humphrey, he was wont to assert, had been a neighbor of the Gom of the Dale, of whom mention will be made hereafter. But the aforesaid man of God, conscious of the poison of the crooked serpent, by constant prayers, by frequent fastings and holy meditations, by the grace of God, purged all his temptations. Whereupon it happened that not only secretly, but also openly, 
the whole enemy proceeded against him, waging with him a visible conflict. And because the assaults of the foe were day by day grievous to him to bear, and he suffered lack of water at his table, wandering round the neighboring places, not far from his abode toward the west, he discovered in the valley a spring, beside which he made himself a hut, and built an oratory in honor of God and the Blessed Mary. And there, having finished the struggle of his life laudably in the service of God, he passed happily from the prison of his body to the Lord. So that's the tale of the founding of what will grow to become Dale Abbey over the next century or so. The Chronicle of Dale Abbey hasn't received much attention at all that I've been able to find. Um, The most comprehensive discussions come from 19th century antiquarians passionate about their local Derbyshire history. Um, Beyond that, most scholarly use of the Chronicle has been by historians who are primarily interested in reconstructing or confirming the various records of who owned what and when. Uh, I haven't been able to find anyone writing about the literary features of this text, um, at least not in a scholarly article. There may be a book chapter tucked away somewhere that I haven't spotted. Um, But it's otherwise wide open territory, Uh, and there's some very interesting things going on here that a curious literary critic could dig into. I mean, let's start with the first thing. You have our chronicler deferring to the narration of a woman. Not just any woman, of course. This is a noble woman responsible for founding the Abbey Church. Uh, She is the boss, in a sense. Uh, But it's still rather bracing to see this scene of a woman, a laywoman no less, addressing and, as it were, teaching the canons in their own abbey. Uh, This kind of thing isn't unique, but it is rare. And rarer still is taking such a scene and using it as the basis for an official history. Uh, It highlights two things. Um, One is the strong feminine thread that runs through the history of this male religious house. Uh, It starts with the hermit receiving a vision of the Virgin Mary, who remains the celestial patron of the abbey. Um, But it carries through a series of lay female patrons, um, or should that be matrons, who persist as mother figures for its inmates, uh, from the Gama the Dale to Lady Matilda the Storyteller. And that's the second thing we might make note of. This is a chronicle rooted almost entirely in oral history. Now, oral history is a perfectly common historical resource for many medieval chroniclers, but it is usually supplemented and reinforced by transcriptions of written sources, uh, either previous written histories or especially official letters, charters, and grants of privileges. You basically don't have that kind of documentation incorporated into the Chronicle of Dale Abbey. It's almost entirely the passed-down tales of the place. I expect this is just another effect of the relatively small stature of this community. It's not a player on the grand national stage. Uh, It's not sending lawyers to the king's court or to Rome to argue rights and jurisdiction. And furthermore, as a community, it doesn't have a strong historical tradition. In fact, as we'll see in our next episode, there are a number of efforts to start up a religious community here in the Hermit's Dale, and they fail. Uh, It takes a while before a stable and sustainable community is achieved. Um, And so its history up until that point is discontinuous. 
So it makes sense that what's known about those early communities is mainly the rumors and gossip that's been passed along by the other people of the Dale. Uh, And that's the really charming thing about this chronicle. It really feels like it's been written by an almost folksy local historian who isn't all that removed in time or space uh, from the events that he's relating. And he's writing in order uh, really to preserve the memory of the place um, and not necessarily with a lot of ulterior legal reasons um, to establish privileges and rights and the other agendas that influence so many other grand monastic histories. All right, a final thing I wanted to add in um, before we wrap up. Translations of the Chronicle appear in two 19th century sources. Uh, The first is the article by Hope, who provides both a revised edition of the Latin text and a fresh translation, and that's the version we just heard. Uh, But there's also an article from the same decade, from the 1880s, by the Reverend Charles Carey, who was your classic combination of parish vicar and antiquarian. His article on the Abbey and the Hermitage as antiquity sites uh, was first published in an archaeological journal called Reliquary, uh, and then later independently reprinted as the kind of pamphlet that I presume was meant to be sold to visitors of the site. Um, And Carey writes like one who is hoping to drum up good tourist PR for his little local attraction, not unlike the author of Our Chronicle, as it happens. Carey's opening lines are almost comically grand. He says, There is no parish in England whose earliest recorded history dawns upon us with a greater glow of interest than the parish of Dale Abbey. And a bit later he adds, Seldom a day passes, and no wonder, but the quaint little village is enlivened by the feet of pilgrims, young and old, from every quarter. The place abounds with ample food for thought and profitable meditation. Carey also has some interesting descriptions of the Hermit's Cave as it was in the 1880s. And looking at pictures of it today, it seems that the antiquarian societies of Carey's time up through um, English heritage, uh, the Hermitage now being a scheduled monument, um, they've done a pretty good job of preserving it, because Carey's description seems to match up pretty well with present-day photos. And I'll put a couple of those up on the website, uh, MedievalDeathTrip.com. Carey describes the Hermitage thusly. The Hermitage is excavated in an elevation of soft sandstone, which forms the southern boundary of the dale. It consists at the present time of one apartment, measuring about six yards by three, which is entered by a doorway between two window holes. One of these, the western, has been formed out of a doorway, and there can be no doubt but that originally the cell was divided into two compartments, the one towards the west forming the oratory, and the other, with the present doorway and adjacent window east of it, the ordinary abode of the hermit. Carey then describes a niche that's been carved in one wall for holding a lamp, and then comments, There are other holes here and there in the walls, which, it is to be feared, are of no great antiquity, for the place has served other purposes than those of austere seclusion and devotion. About seventy years ago it was actually occupied by one of the inhabitants of the village during the rebuilding of his cottage, and here too he erected his stocking frame. But this is not all. In this very place his wife presented her spouse with a son. And Carey provides an exclamation point. 
Uh, the Hermitage was spared some further injuries to its sacred character, though. Uh, Kerry relates that in relatively recent history, the steward of the estate had given the caretaker of the Hermitage permission to install a door and windows for the purposes of charging admission for people wanting to see into the holy place, uh, though the caretaker died before being able to carry out this plan. In fact, Carrie's own words are, fortunately, the man died, which isn't exactly the sentiment you'd expect from a vicar, uh, though maybe it's a fortunate death in the sense that it spared the caretaker from the blasphemy of desecrating the sacred space. Um, but not everyone was so fortunate uh, to be spared from sin, you might say. Um, Kerry describes one further modern modification to the cave. He says, It is much to be regretted that some visitors should think it necessary to disfigure the rocky walls of the hermitage with their initials. Much better to perpetuate their memories by some good or generous action, for then their names would probably be written in a record which time can never efface. And in the photos you can find online of the interior of the cave, um, you can still see a lot of carved graffiti, um, presumably a huge mixture of 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st century names and initials all jumbled on top of each other. Um, again, in a way that, uh, although I sympathize with Reverend Carey's dismay, is nonetheless strangely charming, um, probably just because the sheer quantity of it establishes this graffiti as a kind of further local tradition. Uh, I certainly don't want to defend carving your initials into a heritage site, um, but there is, of course, a point at which graffiti also becomes archaeology and history. And that reminds me to plug a cool project and book. Matt Champion is the director of the Norfolk Medieval Graffiti Survey, uh, and the author of a very cool-looking book just recently released um, that I haven't been able to get my hands on yet, um, but it's entitled Medieval Graffiti, The Lost Voices of England's Churches. There is a Kindle version available now, um, but I'm personally holding out for a print copy when they uh, become available in the States. It seems like a book you'd want to be able to physically flip through. But what I have been able to read is Champion's Twitter feed, at um, G. Uh, that's the letter G, uh, and it is great, uh, full of great pictures especially. I highly recommend following them, um, so at Medieval G. Okay, our last bit of business is to answer our riddle from the Halloween anniversary episode. It was a spooky-sounding riddle, though the answer is not so much spooky as it is simply disgusting. The riddle was... It's dead, and it seeks to drive the living from the forest. What is it? This was another of the claret riddles, and the answer, translated from the Latin, is A comb is not alive, but it gets the nits out of your hair. So yes, it's about combing lice out of the forest of your hair. And given that the riddle only really works uh, if this is an activity you're relatively familiar with, that's a bit of a reminder of the hygiene of the age. Um, now, I've gone to bat before uh, fighting the Hollywood stereotype of medieval people being just caked in dung, you know, toothless and covered in warts and scabs. Um, and other historians and anthropologists have done quite a bit to reveal medieval personal hygiene as a bit more sophisticated than we've 
been led to believe by pop culture. Um, but at the same time, we can't kid ourselves that it was anywhere near the standards of living in the West today. Uh, and on the one hand, we can think of them as just gross, but on the other, we might consider that they tolerated conditions that would be almost torturously unendurable to most of us now. Um, and we should remember, too, in this time of Thanksgiving and entering a season of charity, uh, that there are those enduring these same kinds of conditions and worse who aren't separated from us by half a millennium, uh, but are suffering right now both in distant places and also right alongside us, uh, we who can at least afford a digital media player of some form to listen to podcasts on. So, uh, happy holiday season, everybody. Um, before we close this episode out, we have our second medieval mystery word to introduce. Um, part of the trick to this one is getting it in the right language. The word is borda. B-O-R-D-A. Borda. It's not the place where some people are fixated on erecting fences. It's not how you're probably feeling after listening to me ramble on about the archaeological observations of a 19th century curate. Um, what it does mean, we'll find out next time, when we'll be continuing the story of Dale Abbey, looking at some of those first pilgrims who came to a remote and isolated place to practice their religion, uh, only to decide that they didn't like it that much and left again. And some of them get up to things that would certainly make a Puritan blush. All that next time on Medieval Death Trip. Until then, you can find us in the usual places. Uh, website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. Email, Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And Twitter, at MDT Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>